This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We like to start each program by looking back at what happened on this date in history, and we'll do that today, as we always do. But I think we're going to look back at what happened in this week in history, 45 years ago, in our second segment today. Because it was 45 years ago this week that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin put down on the surface of the moon as part of the successful Apollo 11 mission. So what better time to talk about Neil Armstrong? And we'll do so with the author of a book about him, Jay Barbary, an award-winning space correspondent for NBC for the past 55 years, has written a book about his friend, Neil Armstrong, titled, Neil Armstrong, A Life of Flight. We're supremely confident that will be a worthwhile conversation in our second segment today, so you better stick around for that. And I'm glad we have that as a backup today, because some of these days in history are just less eventful than some of the others, and, well... July 24th, apparently was not one of history's more scintillating dates. For example, it was on July 24th in 1216 that Censio Savelli was consecrated as Pope Honorius III. And while serving for 11 years, he confirmed two well-known religious orders, the Dominicans in 1216 and the Franciscans in 1223. I did get a chance, by the way, to visit a couple of the California missions here, which is an interesting historical endeavor. And I'm pretty sure the ones I went to were founded by um, one of those two orders, but I I can't remember which one. Actually, Doug, Father Sarah was a Franciscan. Oh, well, thanks for that. My catechism teacher would not be proud of me. And it was on July 24th in 1487 that the citizens of Leeuwarden in the Netherlands rebelled against a ban on foreign beer. It's hard to blame them. And on this date in 1911, the lost city of the Incas, Vilcopampa, now better known as Machu Picchu, was discovered by the American explorer Hiram Bingham. It is where the last Inca emperors found refuge from the Spanish conquistadors and is today one of Peru's great tourist attractions. On this date in 1929, U.S. President Herbert Hoover proclaimed the Kellogg-Briand Pact, which renounced war as an instrument of foreign policy. It didn't uh, hold up too well. And finally, on what has to be one of history's least scintillating days, on July 24th in 1936, the British General Post Office inaugurates a telephone speaking clock service. And in fact, 248,000 calls were made during the first week. Our quote of the day comes from Alexander Dumas, who said, All generalizations are dangerous, even this one. And our bonus quote of the day is from George Bernard Shaw, who once said, Beware of false knowledge. It is more dangerous than ignorance. Our quip of the day comes from comedy impresario Mitzi Shore, who said, It's a sin to encourage mediocre talent. And no, we don't know who encouraged Cameron Diaz. Our joke of the day, oddly enough, comes from the letters to New Scientist magazine. Someone asked a few weeks back why it is that the paint on red cars fades more quickly than any other car color. Well, it turns out that red is the wavelength of color with the least energy, with the blue end of the spectrum having about twice the energy. Something that shows up red is 
reflecting the red but absorbing the blue, thus taking more of a beating in the energy department. In a follow-up to that, someone wrote the magazine to note, Regarding the comments made about fading red paint in the June 7th issue, I came across an amusing instance of this in the Flinders Range of South Australia. A spectacular feature on the road from Port Augusta to Corn is the Pitchy Richie Pass. For many years, a sign naming the pass stood at its entrance. It was written in black except for the initial letters of each word, which were in red. You see where this is going, I think. That part of the world enjoys a lot of bright sunlight and clear skies, and the red paint faded over time to become almost invisible. This left behind a rather amusing sign. And yes, if you're not following it, this meant that the Pitchy Richie Pass in time became the Itchy Itchy... Well, you do the rest. Our anecdote for today's show comes from the book, Neil Armstrong, A Life of Flight. Turns out the last Mercury astronaut scheduled to do a flight was Gordon Cooper, described as too much of a maverick for some bosses in the space agency. His hotshot jet flying and tendency to bend the rules did not sit well with some. He did, however, have the confidence of Chief Astronaut Deke Slayton. Nevertheless, some official people in NASA didn't want, quote, Trailer park trash, unquote, representing America in space. For his part, Gordon Cooper took the problem head on. In fact, he grabbed NASA's public affairs officer who was leading the attack and threw him into the hallway and assured him that he would kick his condescending ass if he kept it up. Evidently sufficiently scared, the NASA mouthpiece rushed into Deke Slayton's office to complain. Deke Slayton's response was, If Gordo needs any help kicking your ass, I'll help. Our good news for today's program, and we hope this stays good news, is the fact that Time Warner rejected a bid by Fox, that is to say News Corp, owned by Rupert Murdoch, to buy the whole kit and caboodle. Noted the NewYorkTimes.com, the merger of the media companies would have created a colossus, to say the least. This is one of the worst ideas we've heard in a long time, and I want to thank the Surprisingly good coverage found in USA Today about this, which seemed to be ahead of the curve. Particularly the supplemental piece by Michael Wolf talking about how Murdoch has a man in the shadows trying to broker this deal. He used to work for the Time Warner chairman and CEO and now works for Murdoch, and thus would probably be the go-to guy to put such a deal together. Both USA Today and The Economist noted that Rupert Murdoch has a way of getting what he wants sooner or later and that they don't expect this to be the last we've heard about a possible merger like this. We're going to have to stay on this one. Holy mackerel. We have to wonder who in America's regulatory apparatus is standing back thinking that um, the public interest could possibly be served by such a media colossus. As it is now, the news we get comes to us from a very small number of sources. And I was struck by the article in The Economist, July 19th, talking about how back in 1911, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the American tobacco company was, quote, an attempt to monopolize, unquote, and ordered its breakup. But now two of the four companies that came out of that dismantled monopoly are recombining as Reynolds American stands to take over Lorillard. Well, again, our regulators apparently stand by sucking their thumbs. Or perhaps counting their bribe money, we're not sure. 
Our stat of the day for today's program comes from the American Journal of Medicine, and it is 52% for women and 43% for men, as in the number of each which report no exercise per week. These numbers date from 2010, and it's striking to compare them to the last data from 1988. Back in 1988, 19% of women reported no exercise as compared to 52 four years ago. Back in 1988, the percentage of inactive men was 11%. This is now quadrupled to 43% as of four years ago anyway. During this time, studies showed that the calories consumed was constant, meaning that our obesity epidemic here in the U.S. might be due to sloth, not greed. I'm sure some would dispute that, and we'll hopefully talk about that more on today's program or next week's. Well, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for rereading the book. Or is it rewriting the book? With the news that an American who wrote Fiesta, How to Survive the Bulls of Pamplona, was in fact gored by a bull in Pamplona. Bill Hilmar, age 32, is reportedly resting comfortably after his surgery. As far as we know, the bull is fine. And speaking of Rupert Murdoch, it was a bad week last week for being fair and balanced after analysis by fact-checking site Pundit Fact revealed that 60% of the comments made by Fox News hosts and personalities are mostly or outright false. Dear listener, are any of you surprised by that? I don't think so. And it was an ugly week last week for freedom of speech with the news that anti-environmental conservatives have found a new way of expressing their opposition to President Obama's climate change initiatives. They're adding a device, and also, I guess, smokestacks to their trucks so that they spew out as much black exhaust as possible. Called coal rolling, it's a way of giving liberals the finger, said one Wisconsin smokestack seller. You want clean air and tiny carbon footprint? Well, screw you. I don't know. We're pretty sure liberals want clean water, too. What does it mean these guys are going to go defecate in the reservoirs next? Oh, God, I may have given them an idea. (laughs) And it was both a bad and ugly week, part one, for airport safety last week, with the news that a TSA agent refused to let a Washington, D.C. resident through an Orlando airport security checkpoint because apparently he didn't know the District of Columbia was part of the United States. After producing his D.C. license, journalist Justin Gray was asked by the confused agent to present a passport to prove he was an American. A T.A. spokesman has said that his agents would be shown pictures of the D.C. license so they'd be familiar with it. And bad and ugly week for our airport screening part two comes from the news that, uh, well, according to the San Francisco Chronicle, a drunken man was reported by authorities to have posed as a security screener at SFO long enough to direct a couple of women into private booths for pat-downs. And the surprise in this story is that the alleged perp, Eric McLean Slighton, age 53, who has addresses in both San Francisco and Hong Kong, 
and was arrested on suspicion of public drunkenness following this bizarre episode, is in fact a private equity executive with a big-time international resume. In fact, he's reportedly the former managing director of Barclays Capital in Hong Kong and Deutsche Bank in Hong Kong. According to Chronicle columnist Phil Mateer and Andrew Ross, upon contacting the suspect's father, Robert Slighton, who was in New York, he told them he was extremely shocked by the allegations and said there was a time in the past when he had a drinking problem, but that was 10 years ago. To the best of my knowledge, he doesn't drink at this time, and he doesn't drink when he comes here. Sad, isn't it? Sometimes the dads are the last to know. And we're disinclined today to spend a lot of time talking about the twin tragedies of the jet shot down over the Ukraine, as well as the renewal of the bloodbath in Gaza. Well, we've got to say a couple things, I guess. And the first is that we have to suspect that the Russian government did provide some sophisticated missiles to the separatists in Ukraine, with which they shot down that commercial jet. You're not going to take down a jet flying at 33,000 feet with a crude rocket. Of course, the indignation by our government uh, at this Russian bad behavior has to be tempered by the fact that, well, didn't the U.S. Navy shoot down Iran Air Flight 655 back in July of 1988, killing 290 people after supposedly mistaking the plane for a fighter jet? And in the midst of all the calls for how we need data to find out what happened We do have to roll our eyes in comparing that to what happened to TWA Flight 800, which is apparently also downed by an errant missile, with all evidence of that subsequently covered up. And we do need to bring back uh, Christina Borgeson and and Tom Stalkup on this program to talk about the documentary they did about TWA Flight 800. And speaking of rockets, Hamas keeps firing them at Israel, which is... um, murdering people in the Gaza. There's really no other way to put it. While we're appalled at the conduct of the Israeli government, we do have to admit you do wonder why they keep firing these rockets. The Economist speculated on this, and I think it's worth quoting from. Under the headline, Why Hamas Fires Those Rockets, with the subheadline, Hamas Wants Two Big Concessions and It May Not Get Them, the piece notes that many Gazans, not just their leaders in Hamas, think they have little to lose by fighting on. For one thing, the spotlight has been switched back onto them since the Israeli campaign began earlier this month. In Gazan eyes, Hamas gains from the violence because the outside world may, as a result of the grim publicity generated by the bloodshed, feel obliged to consider its grievances afresh. This week, Hamas issued a 10-point plan. A ceasefire, it suggested, could be followed by a 10-year truce. Among its key demands were a lifting of the siege of Gaza and the release of prisoners. Gaza's seaport and airport would be reopened and monitored by the UN. Lost in the shuffle here is the fact that the airport and seaport have been closed and controlled by the Israelis for quite some time. The piece notes that after the last big Israeli effort to stop the rockets, that was in November of 2012, it was agreed that along with a ceasefire, the blockade of Gaza would gradually be lifted and the crossings into Egypt and Israel would be opened. The ceasefire held, but the siege continued. And I think we better leave it there on both topics for now. All right, we've got to take a break in a minute, but I don't want to end on a downer, so let's go out with this. A study by the U.S. Geological Survey 
has upended the long-held assumption that trees lose their vigor with age. In fact, a new study has determined that trees grow more quickly the older they get, packing on girth even after they stop gaining height. That means that senior trees do more than their younger counterparts to capture carbon dioxide from the air and store it as carbon in their wood. A fact that researchers say could make preserving old-growth forests an even more worthwhile strategy for combating climate change. This is potentially some good news, but it does mean we're going to have to change some of our strategies. But hopefully we will. Well, let's take a much-needed break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. When we come back, we're going to talk about Neil Armstrong. So don't go away. <laughs> <laughs> 